Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Kia ora and welcome. From Radio New Zealand National, here's our changing world. Cook Strait is one of the most turbulent and unpredictable bodies of water in the world. It's a bottleneck for winds and strong tidal currents, and the strait is unusual in that the tidal elevations at either side of it are almost exactly out of phase, which means that high water on one side meets low water on the other. But Cook Strait is also of interest to marine scientists because of complex subtidal currents. And Veronica catches up with Niwa oceanographer Craig Stevens to find out about the first comprehensive measurements, which use moored autonomous instruments to track water masses across the strait. From a fluid mechanical perspective, Cook Strait is just a, a, a work of beauty, really. The scale of the, the islands is such that the, the tidal wave, and by that I don't mean tsunami, I mean the wave that's associated with the, the gravitational pull of the moon, um, it rotates around New Zealand. Um, it's at around 12.4 hours as the period. And so that's just enough that it's high on one side of Cook Strait and low on the other. Because um, the tidal height range in New Zealand is not so remarkable in a global sense. It's up to about four metres in some places, but around central New Zealand it's only one and a half to two metres. Yet, um, this, this sort of the shape of um, Cook Strait and this fact that it's high and low on either side drives very, very fast flows through a pretty small gap in sort of geophysical terms, but um, quite big when you're out on a boat. So is the reason for that mostly the, the actual topography and the, the narrowness of the strait? That's half of it. So the, the first half is what I was just talking about, where it's high on one side and low on the other. So that sort of doubles your money in a sense. And then it's the narrowing, it's the constriction. What that does is, is currents that might be only a metre a second, only a couple of knots, not particularly remarkable, gets pushed through to something that's around um, f three to four metres a second at its, at its very fastest. And that's actually comparable to French Pass, which is, is, is the, the iconic bit of New Zealand waters that we think about in terms of energy and, and sort of excitement. Yet Cook Strait is, is over 20 kilometres wide, and that's just its narrowest point, um, and several hundred metres deep, up to about 350 metres deep in the, in the middle. So that, that's a big piece of water to be jamming through at that sort of speed. Yet your focus was actually not on this tidal currents, but on what's underneath that in some way. With all these studies, you tend to go in and sort of cover off all the components of the energy budget, if you like, and then you pick apart different problems for, for different reasons. Working out the tides is, is the obvious one, because we see it, it's fast. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's relevant to, say, marine energy, and it's relevant to the longevity of power cables that go along the seabed. But as soon as you're, you're thinking about things that happen at longer timescales, like transport of fish larvae or pollution, th things where you might care about what happens over a, a couple of days to a week, 
um, through to monthly seasonal timescales. Then you have to look at the, what we call the sort of residual or the subtidal transport. And so this is the, this is the little bit that's left over after the tide has washed backwards and forwards a bunch of times. And so this is the challenge. The, the tides are very fast, so we have to measure these big, fast velocities, but then we have to work out what the difference is between them all to get the leftover bit. So how did you do that? Did you have buoys in the water that somehow record that? Yeah. Uh, I guess buoys and modelling and yeah. a lot of mathematics. And, and this is sort of part of the backstory is that is that we have sort of a paradigm or a, a textbook understanding of what the residual transport might be um, but uh, when you sort of go back through the literature and work out what it's come from it's actually come from quite limited data uh, and that's because oceanography is expensive but in particular working in these sorts of tidal speeds is really tough so in the 70s and 80s when the first sort of current measurements were made what you do is, is you put a, a railway wheel down on the seabed at 300 meters and then you've got a, a bunch of cable with some floats not at the surface, but maybe at around 30 metres depth. And then you have current metres sitting along the wire. And, and in the case of what was happening in the 70s and 80s, that would stay in for a few months. What happens is the speed of the tide pushes that down so that the current is actually measuring almost near the seabed. Um, and with that sort of technology at the time, we didn't necessarily know that. And so, so the first thing we did was we went out and worked out what might have been wrong with the old measurements and then we came in with new technology, which is around sort of um, uh, acoustics. And so it's kind of like um, undersea uh, police speed radar, if you like. It's looking at Doppler shifts with, with acoustics. And this way we can almost cover most of the water column without actually having instruments throughout the water column. But it does mean you have to be out on a boat regularly oh, yeah. enough to do that, well, to take those measurements. Yeah, that's sure. right. <laughs> no, you can't avoid that. Um, there's a lot of juggling, looking for weather windows and when we can operate. But we've got some new technology that we've had in the country for the, about the past five or so years. They were able to leave on the seabed or near the seabed over two years. And so there's almost an order of magnitude more numbers there, and they're, they're better numbers. So whilst this paper is exciting, it's just the start of, of pulling out a, a new understanding of the strait, I think. Let's stick with these particular first results from the data set. So you would be up on a boat and pinging sound waves down into the water is that how it works yeah um not quite so we leave this gear the gear is autonomous right so so we'll leave that on the seabed and so that will do all its stuff um and and what it does is it pings out um acoustic waves in a range of different directions and then it looks at the doppler shift that comes back and then it does some geometry to come up with um, a, a 3d vector of what the water speed will be doing and so it requires um, there to be material in the water for the sound waves to bounce back off. And so that's, Cook Strait's good for that. Yes, right? I'd imagine um, so, yeah. Sort of all the, the turbulence and stirring up of stuff means that there's nice sort of backscatter material. And it also works better if the signal is very strong. And so Cook Strait is good for that because the velocities are so large. It's a great place to work in terms of the, the data quality. The other thing that, that we've sort of... Um, taking a step up, if you like, is that the previous work was often um, just in one location. And so it, by the end of our sequence, we actually had three different locations. And so we we're about able to build up a bit of a picture of the spatial variability. And so this, this is one of the, the new elements, is that um, this, the sort of paradigm, the sort of textbook picture that we've built up. We haven't necessarily deconstructed it, but... Um, 
the, the residual flow is actually quite a bit slower than we thought. There's less flux through Cook Strait, and actually some of it is in the direction opposite to, to this sort of arrow that you draw on a chalkboard if you were doing a simple picture of how Cook Strait worked. So that means there's actually flow moving to the north on the western side, on the Marlborough Sound side. And so that's a bit of a, a change in how we think about these things. And what it means is we have to sort of rethink where there'd be sort of nutrient supply or seawater supply for filling the Marlborough Sounds and some of the sort of the aquaculture industry and stuff like that that's associated with that. You mentioned that it's those residual currents that are actually more important when it comes to nutrient flows, pollution, transport, supply of water to areas in the Marlborough Sounds. So is the data set, will it eventually have some predictability in it? Will you be able to say what's going to happen? The way we tend to work in terms of predictability is we appeal to ocean models. So ocean models, um, these days they do very well, I think, um, once they've got the right boundary conditions, once they're driven by the right things. So, for example, looking at the drift tracks from the Rena wreckage, once you have an idea of what the offshore ocean currents are doing, you can model that kind of thing reasonably well. The trick that happens somewhere like Cook Strait is that there are very few places in the world with that level of sort of tidal energy, the dissipation that comes with that, and so that's different to what's in most models. And so that's one of the, the elements that we've been working on is to, to, to make the models um, see the same things that we saw in the observations. Um, it's, it's not quite tuning, um, it's more looking at the processes in the model uh, that contribute to the model and perhaps tweaking some of those. Um, so, so the predictive capability um, comes a little bit downstream, it's not a direct product of our data set. What was the most surprising finding for you? Two things, and one was sort of a procedural thing that we'll now target in our next study, and that was the, the, the absolute tidal speed. So this is not really the subtitle problem, but we had to account for it to get there. And that was that the maximum speeds that we saw were around four meters per second, and that's, that's much faster than any of the previous measurements have identified. So that was kind of an exciting thing from a, you know, waving the flag or ticking the box kind of thing. But the other two points was that the residual flow is less than we thought it was, perhaps by a factor of three. And so that's quite important for understanding the circulation in the central New Zealand region on our sort of continental shelf. Because um, the thing to keep in mind is we've got much bigger transport fluxes to the north and to the south. But what happens in the middle is kind of this delicate balance between the two. So quite a small transport through Cook Strait can have some quite big effects on how that, that balance between the north and south the currents go. Um, and the other element is the, the fact that we've identified at least seasonally, so late summer through to autumn, there seems to be this net flow on the western side which will bring, which will sort of change our picture of how the Marlborough Sounds should work in terms of where their seawater is coming from. It's another step back to work out uh, the implications of that, the differences between fluid that's come from the Tasman Sea, sort of up the, the um, west coast of the South Island versus material that's come around the Southland Current from, you know, past Otago, uh, versus what's coming down the Wairapa coast. So we're sort of, we're building our picture of this delicate balance between these big things that might be affected by this small sort of little screwdriver that's playing with the, the mechanics.
Are those different water masses that you've just described very different? I'd imagine that just in terms of the sediment load yeah. would make a difference. Well, I tend to think about it in terms of um, nutrient availability and the temperature of the water column. The Chatham Rise, which is not far away from, from where we are, is, is probably a better example of, of what's going on, but it's this balance of stuff that's come from the north, so it'll come down the Queensland coast and then shoot across uh, round past Cape Rayinga versus what's basically come past Tasmania, and then that sneaks around from the south, and it's, so it's the, the mixing of those two, plus the actual the mixing itself that'll bring up material from, from deep down that generates some of the really productive sort of fisheries. Um, it's the kind of thing you can see with satellites from space. You'll actually see the phytoplankton, the material in the water, growing in front of your eyes and big sort of swirls of populations as they um, move and change. And so, so it's adding to our picture of that sort of variability. Looking ahead, I'd be curious to hear what your future questions are, but also the way you've described this, even a small increase in temperature would make a huge difference. So if we are facing a, a warmer future? I'm not sure Cook Strait is the place to address those sorts of questions. One thing that we did pay quite a bit of attention to, because we've, we've got a two-year time series, which is a huge amount of data from a tidal perspective. You know, it's many, many times the 12.4-hour thing. But from a climate perspective, it's, it's way too short. Um, but what we, would, what we were doing is we were putting our data in the sort of the context of the last 20 or so years of satellite data. Um, but the signal is so dominated by the seasonal and mixing scales that I'm not sure. It's not where I'd start to be, to be looking at um, climate signatures in the temperature. But it's a great place to start in terms of building up time series observations so that we can detect change. And so it's this notion of sort of coastal or shelf seas observatories that's taking off internationally where we'll get into a situation where we're regularly monitoring and quite often in real time um, parameters that in the past would have seemed a little bit esoteric but now we're sort of starting to see that they might be relevant numbers to keep an eye on. Temperature and stratification being the sort of the obvious mechanical ones that, that are important. And so there are things that you can do, the sorts of moorings that we put in, you can achieve that even more sophisticatedly, if that's a word, with um, autonomous submarines that you basically, you don't moor something in place, you actually drop something off from a boat or from a harbour and it goes out and regularly does your sampling for you. Or you can be setting up um, radar from shore, so they're like, these are like big um, ship's radars but on steroids if you like. They're seeing for hundreds of kilometres and they're looking at wave and current patterns. We sort of have to start building up these time series now rather than waiting and we'll still be ignorant in, in a decade's time. That was Craig Stevens at Niwa. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, radionz.co.nz forward slash Our Changing World. Kakiteano.